Good morning. In response and in hope of joy, would you join me in prayer? God of groundbreaking humility. God we can rely on to make the most outstanding entrances in the most unlikely places and create the most amazing work among the most deemingly un deeming unworthy. How is it that you have chosen us to do your work? We gather to remember the miracle of our call and how you choose the most unlikely for your greatest miracles. Why did you choose John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus? Or Mary, an unwealthy, unremarkable, economically and politically disadvantaged young woman with no power over her future, no prospects to carry and nurture your incarnate Jesus? Or Joseph, a formerly righteous man in society to be a present father and protector of your son, the child of a woman who became pregnant before their marriage and would ruin him in the eyes of everyone else. Or a donkey belonging to ordinary Nazarene farmers to carry your son and his weary family into Bethlehem as a grand entrance into the city of David. Or shepherds living in the fields outside in the cold, keeping sheep, with no wealth, no fine clothes or possessions, or anything to boast about, to be your first witnesses, to be encouraged by angels to shout glory to God in the highest, boasting in the treasure they had found in what they had just seen. You made wise, wealthy men of science travel miles and miles to be humbled before the presence of a baby. You answered the prayers of the hopeless with your coming. You spent years with bad fishermen. You invited a disliked tax collector to ministry, visited the house of a hated rich man, dined with the hated, the ostracized, embraced the lepers, empowered the disadvantaged, and made them your ministers. You blessed those who hunger and thirst, the meek, and sacrificed everything for those who would always betray you and let you down. We are them, right there among those you have chosen to love defying all odds. This is what we see when we talk about your coming. This love is what we anticipate in Advent. We saw through Jesus your tendency to make foolish decisions, yet intentional decisions, about who to love, that shame the wise into silence. Your tendency to bring up the powerless to have hope of overcoming oppression your tendency to use the ones deemed unworthy or undeserving by the world as hosts at your table, Baptists in your ministry, healers in your stead. You showed us your wisdom through Jesus, and we invite your Holy Spirit to fill us with anticipation to see this wisdom again enacted through us and those around us. You are unlikely called, in whose hands you have placed a piece of your boundless love to use. Let us be your instruments changed by your grace. As Christmas time approaches, we come to make a place, and you come to make a place of your love within us. Remind us where we have seen your upside down love bring about your kingdom through broken people just like us. Come make a place in us. Let the broken be your most outspoken witnesses, preparing the way for your coming we are able to boast in this opportunity for you to make in us room for you to come in and change everything. Amen.
So good to share worship with all of you today. And as the choir makes its way out, I invite you to turn in your Bibles together. We'll be reading an excerpt from 1 Corinthians, a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And in the first chapter, we'll be reading verses 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, today we are reflecting on wisdom together. And if I asked you to define wisdom, we'd probably have all sorts of definitions. How would you do it? Is there a difference between, say, just plain old smarts and wisdom? Is there a difference between wisdom and being knowledgeable? One friend of mine gave it to me in the simplest possible way, and you might have heard this way. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomato in your fruit salad. But when the Bible speaks about wisdom, it often looks to stories of people to help us understand and define what otherwise might elude us. And what we find is that wisdom is not first found in plaques or awards or diplomas or the number of books on our shelves. James 3.13 says it this way, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by a good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. And then goes on in verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Let them show wisdom by their good life. And from that point of view, wisdom is not so much something that you have. The evidence of wisdom is found in what you do. And so you probably recall the story from 1 Kings where God appears to Solomon, David's son, in a dream. And God says, ask for whatever you want from me. And Solomon takes a little time with the answer. He answers with considerable care because Solomon knows that God knows him. Solomon knows that God did great things on behalf of the people and helped his father David to rule. Solomon knows and even acknowledges that his own reign is God-given. And so he remembers all this, he recites all this, and then finally replies, give your servant a listening heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. And God responds with joy. Since you've asked for this, God says, and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, or as many of us would, God says, and since you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And so in the Old Testament and in portions of the New, a whole body of teaching and reflection known as the wisdom tradition grew around this desire of Solomon's to be one with a discerning heart for wisdom from God. Most famously, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, bear all the hallmarks of discerning and receiving divine wisdom. In fact, when you read through Proverbs, you realize that Solomon loved wisdom so much he wanted to marry it. Proverbs chapter 8 pictures wisdom as a really good marriage partner. It's echoed in Proverbs 31. 
And since wisdom in both Hebrew and in Greek are grammatically feminine, wisdom is pictured as a woman, as a good wife. And so it's like Solomon has gathered all the little princes of his court around him, and he says, don't chase after folly on this street corner. In that street corner, marry wisdom. She will never, ever let you down. Promise yourself to wisdom. Forsake all others, as long as you both shall live. Now, how we do that is an entirely different matter. The Bible doesn't describe wisdom as some sort of secret knowledge that's passed on from insider to insider. There's no secret wisdom handshake. There's no password you have to have. Wisdom is not something that you can take or that you can make or that you can hoard. Wisdom is known in a relationship. Wisdom, in fact, is bigger than us. Proverbs 8 shows us that wisdom herself is pictured at the very beginning of things. When the Lord marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside like a master worker. And I, wisdom, was a daily delight, rejoicing before the Lord always, rejoicing in God's inhabited world and delighting in humankind. That's not far at all from the prologue to John's gospel, is it? When the evangelist presents eternal divine wisdom that comes to us in Christ at Christmas. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and without Him. Not one thing came into being. And so there's a picture in the Bible of wisdom that exists from eternity all the way to eternity. God creates through this divine wisdom. Wisdom is the delight of God. No wonder Solomon, when he was preparing to ascend this place of a power and authority over God's people, wanted a deep relationship with God's wisdom. But today, as we hear these words from 1 Corinthians, we remember that Solomon is not the only person in the Bible ever to receive wisdom from God. Verse 30 says it this way, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Did you hear it? Jesus is our wisdom. That's how John continues in that prologue describing the incredible descent of wisdom from on high to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God gives wisdom to all who would receive Jesus, who trust Jesus, who follow Jesus, who are transformed by Jesus. Wisdom goes beyond some sort of knowledge of God and is found in a life that's lived with and lived for God. It's a life that embodies the life of Jesus in the here and in the now. What happens when we hear that counsel from James again and we substitute the word Jesus for wisdom? Hear it again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show it by your good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from Jesus. The wisdom that comes from heaven, Jesus, is first of all pure, then peace-loving 
considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. We may not always think a lot of ourselves when we begin that relationship with Jesus, when we begin that relationship with God's wisdom for us. And it's probably wise to remain humble about it. Paul goes to great pains to remind the Corinthian Christians that they were neither strong nor wise in the eyes of their society. And some of you of a certain vintage may remember how Ted Turner very famously said that Christianity is a religion of losers. And after reading the scripture today, I think Ted would get a very surprising amen from Paul. Paul reminds the Christians that deserving has very little to do with grace. And yet through Jesus and his cross, they are graciously loved and they are being transformed by Jesus. Transformed as they commit themselves to Jesus in faith. As they commit themselves to Jesus in trust, forsaking all others as long as they live. And that's at the heart of of the message of Jesus and his cross, that God takes on the humblest of human forms, that in Jesus, God takes on the worst of human experience to the point of death, and there, God takes the burden of our sin and our shortcomings and exchanges it for righteousness. God gives us God's Holy Spirit, and with transformational power, gives us the power to live lives that are new. In a whole new world. A whole new world. Even before this world has totally released its grip on things. And that was foolish to the Greek philosophers of the age. And it was too powerless for those who wanted a conqueror to come and establish some sort of new order from the seats of power. But here we learn the wisdom from God that the wisdom by which monarchs like Solomon would rule from their thrones is the same wisdom by which God works our salvation in humility and on a cross. And so think about some of the very familiar stories at Christmas time. Mackenzie, I'm indebted to you in your prayer for setting the table, calling to mind all of the familiar characters and stories. Last week, we talked about Zechariah an old man, a priest, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, are childless. Zechariah, of course, had lived a very good life. He had obeyed the law. He fully knew the scriptures because of his role as a priest and, and did everything he could to live according to the righteousness that was known in that age. Surely Zechariah would have had ears to hear and a heart ready to receive the fullness of what the angel promised Zechariah in that moment. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And that son will make ready a people for the coming of the Lord. But Zechariah responds to that astounding message with skepticism, with doubt. How can I be sure of this? He asks, I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. He dare not call her old. But apparently for all the knowledge that he possessed of the scriptures, he wasn't ready to be transformed by the wisdom of them. And so in response, God puts Zechariah in sort of a timeout. 
And Zechariah loses his ability to speak in those intervening months until his son, the child John, is born. And only after that child is born does he sing a song of faith about the promises that were made over his son and about the one to whom his son would eventually point and say, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Immediately after the story of the announcement to Zechariah, there is another story in Luke chapter 1. That same angel appears to Mary and announces to her her own pregnancy. And there's quite a contrast between how Zechariah responds to God's message and Mary responds. Because Mary, of course, is a young woman. She's a virgin. She's promised in marriage to a tradesman named Joseph. We know that Mary found favor with God. But as a woman in that community, in that day and age, she was likely excluded from things like scripture study. But just like with Zechariah, the angel announces to Mary You will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son. You will name him Jesus. His name will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor Jacob. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I wonder if Mary heard in those words the echo of the ancient Davidic promise. A covenant that God made with David centuries and centuries before. Did she know that Isaiah once prophesied, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. She also replies to Gabriel with a question, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Zechariah asked a question too. He got put in time out. But instead... Of striking her mute, the angel explains the situation to her and tells her to go see Elizabeth, and there will be more evidence of God's great power. So I wonder what the difference between those two encounters might be. The way I see it, it must be the state of heart by which they experienced this new revelation. Zechariah, Zechariah met that pronouncement with a certain kind of distrust it's as if he were saying convince me that this is true because i don't see any reason to believe mary on the other hand seems to meet this announcement with a certain innocence and curiosity it's almost like she's saying i believe you but i'm going to need some help to see how all this is going to play out God does not mind our questions. Mary shows us that questions in and of themselves are welcome, provided we also welcome God's response. It's really difficult, and if I can get an amen from you teachers out there, maybe this would help. It is very difficult to teach someone anything if they are not interested in learning and they're not interested in growing. Many years ago, uh, I took the youth group that I was shepherding at the time to New Mexico. And there, on a Navajo reservation, we spent a week um, working on on a church and helping to refurbish that. And every night, we were prepared wonderful food uh, by the kind of the mothers and grandmothers of the tribe. And one night, we got to sit at the feet of one of the grandmothers. And she got to just dispense some of the wisdom of her years and of her tribe. The kids could ask 
any sorts of questions they wanted to. But as often happens, they would ask a question and then get caught in sidebar chatter and conversation. And so after about a minute of trying to speak over them, she just went silent. And she waited for everyone to get quiet. She looked at them and she said, I will speak when you are ready to listen. They were quiet after that. But I think that captures the state of heart that's required for us to discern the wisdom that comes from on high. Mary not only asked her question, she was willing to listen and trust that the next steps she would take would be according to that word. She didn't have the entire roadmap of her own life's journey, but she had enough to take a next step. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. There are many contrasts at Christmas about how different characters in different communities receive the Christ child and the wisdom that comes from on high. Think about how Matthew contrasts the response of Herod and the people of Jerusalem to the news that born in the city of David is a king. This news has been brought by the Magi on their pilgrimage from the east. They've come to visit that same king. And Herod and the people of Jerusalem have all the home court advantage. They have scripture. They have tradition. They have history. But Herod and the elites of Jerusalem are unwilling to receive the news of the newborn king, of God's divine visitation. And in fact, they prefer to hang on to their power at a terrible cost. But these foreign guests, on the other hand, they remain curious enough to follow that star step by step, day by day, all the way to the home of that child Jesus. And after visiting, after worshiping, after bringing their gifts, Matthew tells us in a beautiful bit of poetic irony, they went home by another way, which is a wonderful picture of transformation. So what are we going to do as we compare and contrast stories like these for our lives when we consider wisdom for us? If you long to live a good life, if you long to live a life that is wise, then you're going to have to be willing not only to ask, but to receive. And be willing to let your heart your life to be shaped by a vision of true wisdom that comes from God. So we can look to those magi who studied things that were foreign to them, and yet they took them to heart. It led them to wisdom. We can be wise like Mary, who in the face of the extraordinary remained trusting and curious enough to look and to listen for how God was at work in her life, and she allowed something new to grow within her. And so the call for us is the same, to accept the wisdom of God that comes to us as a gift in Jesus Christ, to welcome his intrusion into our world and trust that his way of faith, of hope, and of love is the life that cultivates a joy that doesn't wither or fade or shrink in the face of our circumstances. Let your heart be a listening heart. And if your heart sings, 
Let it sing, O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to grow. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to me, O Israel. And Yates. Amen. As we open our hands and our hearts now to practice our generosity, bring our offerings in worship, that is part of the response of this time. As Michael leads us, I encourage you not only to ask your questions, to lay your life before God, but in a special way, tune your heart, tune your life to how God may be responding with a wise and discerning heart today that you would know the next steps you take in these next days. Trust that God is on your side. Trust that God will lead you wherever God would will. Trust that God will lead you home.